0: Now, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics.
1: Wow! I feel good. I knew that I wouldn't I
2: feel
3: Good
0: morning, and welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. We've got a timely and important bunch of questions today. What is this national health care legislation signed into law last Tuesday? How will it affect you? How will it affect me? And what about Congress and the President? Do they get the same health care as we do? Or do they really get a special plan the rest of us Cannot get. Hmm. I'll be speaking today with Dr. Timothy Jost, professor of law at the Washington and Lee University School of Law. He's a specialist in health law. And Dr. Jeff Kane, a practicing physician, director of psychosocial education at Sierra Nevada Cancer Center in Grass Valley, California. Jeff authors the lively blog Healthcare as Though People Matter. And listeners, please feel free to call in if you have a question or comment for either of our guests. The number here is 707-937-5103. I'll be repeating it at other times during the program. Again, 707-937-5103. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with our interview with Dr. Jeff Kane and our interview with Professor Timothy Yost. Stay tuned We'll be right back.
2: Doctor, doctor, give me the news, I got to
0: Welcome back to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Today we're going to speak with Dr. Jeff Kane, who humanely treats cancer patients in Grass Valley, California, and he teaches physicians around the country how to improve their bedside manner. Jeff continues to advise doctors to engage heart before opening mouth. His blog, Healthcare as Though People Matter, is lively, entertaining, and very informative on a wide range of issues involving patients, doctors, and the doctor-patient relationship. We're also going to be talking with Professor Tim Yost, professor of law at Washington and Lee University School of Law. Tim will be speaking to us from Lexington, Virginia. He's the co-author of a casebook, Health Law, used widely throughout the United States. Professor Yost writes extensively on health law issues and appears frequently in national media, including CNN, C-SPAN, National Public Radio, and many newspapers. Jeff, are you with us? Here I am. You're here. Excellent. It's a pleasure to have you back today, Jeff. Let's start right out with what you say is the most important problem with the delivery of health care today. Speaking as a physician, what do you say about that?
1: Well, I think the most important problem, I mean, a lot of people think it's the cost. I think it's the uh, evaporation of the doctor-patient relationship. I think that uh, what goes on in the uh, examining room between the practitioner and the patient uh, is absolutely paramount in healthcare, and it's disintegrated over the years because of the intrusion of all kinds of third parties, including a lot of technology that, that really isn't necessary.
0: So you're saying the relationship between the patient and the doctor, that's the most important issue. You know the, what I hear
1: very commonly now is uh, patients complaining that uh, while their doctor is with them in the examining room, he or she has their back to them and is, is pecking away on the laptop You know, since all the records have gone electronic. So the, uh, the uh, doctor or the nurse practitioner or uh, physician assistant is actually relating more to the computer than the patient.
0: You know, I was thinking of, of something you said on a on a recent broadcast, where you talked about uh, the average amount of time that a physician has with a patient uh, to meet the proper the standards nowadays is somewhere around six minutes. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. You know, somebody wrote in on my blog saying, "Well, now, how are you going to establish a better relationship in, in the ten minutes that that, that, that the, um, that's allowed for the visit?" Well, it's not 10 minutes. It's more like what you're saying, six to seven minutes nationally. Well, that's ridiculous. You can't uh, establish any kind of relationship in that short of time.
0: I was thinking of you and I myself went to a specialist, a vascular surgeon, uh, a few weeks ago, and I had my first interview with, the, uh, with him and, uh, in Santa Rosa, California, and uh, he spent an hour with me. And I was thinking, as the time was going by, how is this man able to spend an hour with me when the national average is six minutes? Some people are able to spend 15 minutes. He explained everything to me. He established a relationship. It was so different than waiting 45 minutes and then being rushed out after five minutes.
1: Did you ask him that question? How is he able to do that?
0: No, I didn't. I decided I was gonna <laughs> I was gonna focus on my own vascular system and get into the politics <laughs> of his uh, of how he was able to do it during our next visit. I'll be seeing him again in a couple of weeks.
1: Well, you know, I hear from a lot of my doctor friends uh, that those short visits uh, uh, feel terrible to them too. They feel just as bad to them as to the patient because they know they can't do an adequate job of of, of of technical medicine, let alone uh, uh, relationship, in that short a time. So it grieves them. They've been pushed into it by the continual decreases in reimbursement by third parties. So they have to rush more patients through the turnstile in order to just make a living.
0: What can we do about it?
1: Well, for one thing, they have to speak up. You know, I can't feel too sorry for them. Doctors aren't known for their political activism. They pretty well knuckle under to uh, whatever's handed to them. They are starting to scream now in the past month because Medicare payments were recently cut another 20%. Uh, I see some docs, uh, you know, pain is a good motivator. Uh, and I see some docs hurting so much that they start experimenting. They They form different kinds of practices uh... i have a friend who's a crackerjack internist who uh... was tortured by the um, uh... the style of current practice so he uh... doesn't take insu- any insurance anymore uh... he sees people only for cash not a great amount of cash but cash and no appointment is shorter than ninety minutes and he just loves it and so do his patients Well, you know, that's not suitable for everybody, because everybody isn't going to afford to to pay that kind of cash. But I know other people who are doing other experiments, such as concierge practices. Have you heard of that? Uh,
0: Yes, I have.
1: Yeah, this this is a prepaid kind of system that limits the number of of patients in the practice. But there are a number of experiments available, and if you're heard enough, you're going to try something instead of just complaining all the time.
0: Yeah, just for those listening, uh, concierge practices where patients uh, each pay the physician a certain amount of money per month or a certain amount of p- money per year, the physician takes a limited number of patients, uh, the aggregate of what they all Pay per month or per year is what pays the physician on a yearly basis, and then the the physician is on call to those patients uh, virtually twenty four hours seven days a week, except when they get backup, and also can spend uh, more time with each patient. Is that correct? Did I get that right, Jim? Yeah, you
1: you have it. Um, doctors uh, are complaining more and more about this. It's not uh, the prices aren't high because of doctor greed. Doctors are making less money than they have in the past fifty years. Adjusted for inflation uh, it 's because of the, the intrusion of third parties who demand their cut, like insurance companies
0: when I look over the um, the programs uh, the speakers that we 've had on this on this uh, show uh, over the last four years and a wide variety of, of, uh, of physicians, psychologists, professors, researchers, and so on and I, and I add it all up it looks to me like we have become a, uh, a country of uh, a country of addicts, and uh, and and we're a country of uh, of of, out of control addicts. Uh, the big, uh, the biggest addiction seems to be the addiction to uh, some uh, combination of uh, carbohydrates, fats, and proteins uh, called food. Uh, nicotine is still way up there as an addiction in our country. Uh, alcohol is uh, certainly uh, a significant uh, product that is that is used uh, by uh, used and abused by ten uh, percent of the uh, of the country and used by a third of the country, and when you all of it point seems to me to point in a certain direction, which is that we have trained ourselves or we've been trained to look outside of ourselves for something to take into ourselves in order to change our consciousness, whether it be with food, whether it be with cigarettes, whether it's alcohol, whether it's one arm bandits. But we're doing something out there in order to change something in here. Does, do you resonate to that? Does that make some sense to you?
1: Completely. I think that's a very important perception. Uh, you know, what, what drives all these addictions in our country. It's a cultural phenomenon. We are consumers. It reminds me of uh, the uh, the giant worms in uh, Frank Herbert's book, Dune. Do you remember that? Yes. These giant earthworms, all they are is food tubes. They just cruise through the world with their mouths open, and stuff goes in one end and out the other. Uh, it's as though we don't Uh, recognize any power within ourselves. Uh, Everything is outside us and we need to consume. Uh, So it's not just a matter of of blind consumption. We're actually being guided by a very profound and subtle uh, belief system. Now if that's going to change, one opportunity would be in the examining room, which I always think of as a sacred space. Um, I think uh, we have kind of a scientistic culture, science-based culture. And the the priests of that culture, who we see most often are physicians, and we see them in the examining room. And if we had adequate trust, if we had a deep enough relationship with them, we could begin to work out a change in our lifestyle right there. But if you don't, don't know your doctor, your doctor doesn't know you, and the doctor says, uh, you know, I think you should eat less fat, I think you should... Uh, stop smoking. What does that mean to you? It it doesn't have the depth uh, that's required to actually change your behavior.
0: Interesting. Changing the way we look at how we change our consciousness in the doctor's office. We've got a caller here. Let's take a call. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air.
2: Yeah, hi, good morning. Good morning. Uh, first of all, I'd like, I'd like to tell you, I think you've got the best program on KZXY. walk you, you really do not. I like it when it focuses on politics rather than on health, but it's a very good, very intelligent program with great access.
0: Thank you. Uh,
2: but, and, the, uh, I, I, and I don't mean to sound um, uh, peevish about this, but I wanted to call right away and give this guy and you a perspective on doctors in general. Um, the, uh, it's, this uh, you're, you're dealing with philosophical issues, of course, here, and with the perspective of doctors and patients. The, the Greeks worked it out with the Hippocratic Oath, Hippoc- and, um, the, our medical establishment in this country is hopelessly corrupt. The, uh, doctors are so unbelievably overcompensated. I can't believe that this guy has the audacity to suggest that third-party payers who are ever are squeezing the doctor. Doctors live on golf courses. Doctors don't give a damn about their patients, in my experience. And moreover, they are the key element in the maintenance of this gigantic establishment, this rip-off establishment, which we see, although I support President Obama and I support his attempt to get a health care package in place, the true nature of this problem is that doctors are selling life back to people that are desperately sick, and they're getting top dollar for it. No drug pusher is as rapacious. No group in all of human history has had a group of people like the American public throat, like doctors have. And when I hear a doctor, when I see a doctor, when I meet a doctor, my visceral response is contempt and hatred. I personally... over. 40 years. And the, uh, you know, I go to the Veterans Administration when I have an emergency problem. I am completely locked out of any kind of health care. And I'm not locked out by the system that is in place. I'm locked out. So
0: No, yeah, you were having a little difficulty. So we had to cut you off there. There's some technical problem. But I want to say that you you articulated your position extremely well. And I thank you for that. And I want to have Dr. Kane. Uh, respond. I mean, I think you're speaking for a lot of people. I've heard the kind of things that you're talking about, though, not as well articulated as you just did, sir. I've heard it in the locker room, and I've heard it on the streets, and I'm sure, Jeff, you've heard it as well, which is the doctors are the ones who are creating this six-minute appointment, the doctors are the ones who are reaping benefits, and the doctors are the ones who are taking the money to the golf courses and the country clubs and are driving the big cars.
1: Well, I I think he's very right about very many doctors. Uh, Those aren't uh, most of the doctors who I know. Most of them who I know uh, feel kind of helpless at being squeezed by third-party payers. They're not very sophisticated financially. Uh, One of my kids was interested in becoming a doctor, and she looked into uh, how much it costs to be a doctor, what kind of loan she'd need to take out and how long it would take to pay that back, and then what doctors make. And she thought, I, I'd, got, I'd have to be crazy to go into medicine. So she's, she's, she didn't go into medicine. Uh, I, I think doctors are the ones we see very often, so they're easy for us to get angry at. The, uh, the, the say, insurance executives are more faceless, so we can't spew anger at them as easily. Now that having been said, I try to avoid doctors as much as I can because uh, I don't know that many of them who are um, uh, humane to their patients. They tend to become uh, institutionalized uh, and uh, run a uh, an industrial kind of operation. Uh, which uh, well, it angers me, uh, but it also uh, makes makes me sad in that they are missing the opportunity to do what they were uh, initially uh, uh, planning to do, which is to be altruistic healers.
0: But maybe Uh, it's too much, Jeff. Maybe it's too much to expect the doctors to take all the responsibility for turning around what you just agreed with me a few moments ago is a national problem of addiction when we include food, cigarette, alcohol, and various other ways of changing our consciousness by taking something in. Maybe we need to look to ourselves, to ourselves as people and ourselves as patients, to turn this thing around. So perhaps, let me ask you this question, is health worth fighting for?
1: <laughs> that is a great question.
0: Thank you. Is it? Um, is health worth fighting for? Is, is, does, should we be asking the average person to look at whether their health is worth fighting for, whether they can no longer expect, whether it's an Obama plan or their local physician or a state insurance company or somebody else, to do it for them, that each of us is going to have to decide, is our health worth fighting for?
1: Yeah, uh, I, the, your, your comment about personal responsibility, I think, is very important. Somehow we've absorbed this notion that we can uh, treat ourselves badly in terms of what we ingest and expose ourselves to and so on uh and doctors will fix it uh you know largely that's because of advertising and uh a lot of uh TV lore uh like we used to watch Marcus Welby and so on these are super people who can fix virtually anything well it's not so in real life we can't fix people uh, so easily uh, and I think we have to start understanding that ultimately it's our own responsibility. The doctors can help, but their help is limited. Uh, and I think we'd understand that better, again, you know, if, if we had more faith in what was going on right in the examining room, if the uh, relationship were more intimate. We don't have, in this secular culture, we don't have that kind of, uh, of sacred contact with many people where we're that intimate. As a matter of fact, I facilitate cancer support groups for a living. Most people with cancer don't attend support groups, and I kind of suspect that's because they know what goes on in support groups. It's a, an extremely intimate, personal conversation, and I think for very many people that's more threatening than cancer is.
0: We're talking about the possibility of people getting together and taking responsibility for their own health Care. Is that you, uh, Timothy Yost? Yes, it is. Welcome. Welcome aboard Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Thank you. Uh, we've been talking here about what the average person can do to enhance their own health and well being rather than completely turn it over, whether it's to the health care uh, bill or whether it's to their local physician or to turn it over anywhere else. And uh, Dr. Kane has been talking about it in his own practice, just to bring you up to speed. Jeff, one more question. What would happen to the cost of health care if everybody got serious about just two things, exercise and healthy diet?
1: Well, if people took more responsibility in general, the health care costs would plummet. There's no question about that. In fact, you know, I should tell you something. Occasionally, around the world, there are doctor strikes. You've heard of these. Uh, they, they happen, in, they've happened in Israel, and Colombia, and different different countries. And when there are doctor strikes, when doctors simply aren't available for days or weeks at a time, uh, sociologists flood in to see what happens. And in almost every case, during a doctor strike, the death, uh, uh, the mortality rate plummets. Now, what does that mean to people? When doctors aren't available, it means that people must take care of themselves.
0: That sounds like a a study that went on during World War II in England when uh, people were taken out of mental hospitals in order to uh, 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 help with uh, sandbags uh, and and building up fortifications, and a very high percentage of those people never went back into the uh, mental hospital after the war.
1: I hadn't heard of that. That sounds perfect.
0: We're going to take a short break, then we're going to be back with Professor Timothy Yost, who's going to talk to us with specifics about the health care bill, what it means to you and me, and we're also going to ask them about what Congress has for their own health care. You're listening to KZYX 90.7 FM Philo, KZYZ 91.5 FM Willitson-Ukiah, and, and 88.1 FM Fort Bragg, streaming on the web at kzyx.org. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with Professor Timothy Yost of Washington and Lee University. Oh, help me, please, doctor, I'm damaged. There's a pain where there once was a heart.
3: It's sleeping, it's abating. can't you please
0: tear it out and preserve it right there in that jar. Welcome back to Mind, Body, Health and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. I'll be speaking with Timothy Yost, Professor of Law, in a few moments. We've also been talking with Dr. Jeff Kane. But right now, we're going to play a clip for you from President Obama. Do we have that uh, clip ready over there? Okay. Tonight,
2: after nearly 100 years of talk and frustration, wow. After decades of trying and a year of sustained effort and debate, the United States Congress finally declared that America's workers and America's families and America's small businesses deserve the security of knowing that here in this country neither illness nor accident should endanger the dreams they've worked a lifetime to achieve.
0: Tim, what in a nutshell does this law do for the American people? Well, it's a big law
3: and it does lots of things. It's got, uh, it's, uh, the, the Senate bill is 2,400 pages long and the, uh, the House reconciliation bill added another hundred and, 20 pages or so of uh, health-related material to that.
0: So I'm asking you sort of a funny question. How, in a nutshell, do you tell us about (laughs) 2,200 pages of law, huh? (laughs) Well,
3: yeah, let me me just say that virtually 98% of the media attention has been focused on the first 400 pages, which are the health insurance reforms, but that's only really about it when you add some other stuff to it, about a fifth of the bill. So there is a lot uh, in the bill, for example, about prevention, about wellness, about workforce reform, trying to uh, get... More primary care providers into the, into the workforce. There's a provision in there that all uh, chain restaurants are going to have to post the number of calories with every item on their menu. That uh, large employers are going to have to offer uh, nursing women a place where, a private place where they can go to express milk. Uh there's stuff in there, a lot of stuff about fraud and abuse. Uh there's a whole new program for people to save for community care in their retirement or, or when they when they need it. Um, so there's a lot in the bill other than the insurance reforms. Uh with respect to the insurance reforms, in a nutshell, uh what it's going to do is to hopefully largely eliminate risk-based uh, uh, underwriting in this country historically uh... how much you paid for insurance and whether you could get it are all dependent on your on your health status and that will no longer be true uh... so it's going to to regulate the insurers much more care closely and then secondly uh... what it's going to do is to require or at least it's going to ask everybody in the country to get health insurance because obviously if the insurers have to take all the sick people they're going to need a few healthy people or nobody will be able to afford health insurance uh, although there's some exceptions in there there's some big exceptions for people who can't afford it or for people who have low incomes uh... and then the third thing it's going to do it's not going to require employers to provide health insurance but it's going to say to employers if your employees end up uh... getting public subsidies to cover their their insurance then you're going to pay a penalty because uh... you shouldn't be uh... Um, sloughing your employees off on 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 the government to take care of their health uh, and then the fourth thing it's going to do is to uh provide premium subsidies so that anyone whose income family income is below four hundred percent of the poverty level, which for a family of four is is almost ninety thousand dollars, will be eligible for some help with their premiums and with their with their cost sharing uh, and I want then,
0: you I'd like you to please let me interrupt and repeat sure. then repeat that one that sounds so important you're saying. A family of four who has an income, a uh, combined income of less than ninety thousand dollars, are going to get help.
3: Yep, eighty-eight thousand.
0: Eighty-eight uh, thousand currently,
3: currently, but by the time the bill goes into effect in twenty fourteen, I'm sure it will be well over. It's four hundred percent of the poverty level.
0: And what's going to happen to people who are listening uh, to this and they have no health insurance? So what's going to happen to them?
3: Well uh... hopefully they're going to be able to get it if people are below the uh... hundred and thirty three percent of the poverty level which is basically uh... about how much you earn if you work a minimum wage job uh... for you know for the whole year fifty fifty two weeks at that uh... forty hours a week uh... you'll be very close to hundred thirty three percent of the poverty level so if you're at that level uh... and if you have a family you'll be you'll be well below that so at that level you can get medicaid Uh, which is, uh, you know, public insurance. If your income is above 133% of the poverty level, but below 400% of the poverty level, which is most of the American people, uh, then you'll be able to get some help with your premiums and and possibly some help with your cost-sharing. Now, of course, the vast majority of Americans are insured through their employer. That will continue to be true. This bill won't affect them hardly at all. Uh, it'll give them a few additional protections, but, uh, it otherwise won't affect them. Uh, and then of course there's a lot of Americans on Medicare and Medicaid already. But for the uninsured, what this bill means is that, uh, unless you are wealthy enough to afford your own health insurance, the government will probably help you with some tax credits. Which, no. by the way, is a traditional Republican idea. They, they keep, complaining about this bill, but but most of the ideas in here come out of the Republican Party.
0: Now, when you talk about 133%, that might be confusing to some people, so let's put some real numbers on it. A person makes $10 an hour, 40-hour week, $400, 50 weeks, $20,000 a year. <laughs> okay. Where do they fall out in this thing? Uh,
3: it will depend. Uh, you know, I don't have those charts in front of me. I can probably pull them up on my computer. Okay. Uh, but the... Uh, And and of course, they will change between now and 2014. Uh, But if a person is, let's see if I can pull it up quickly. Um, The poverty level depends on uh, on household size, Um, and uh, so right now, um, 100 and. 100% Hundred percent of poverty for a family of of size of one is ten thousand eight hundred and thirty. For two is fourteen thousand five hundred and seventy. For three is eighteen thousand three hundred and ten. And for four is twenty two thousand and fifty. So one hundred and thirty three percent of that would be oh about fourteen thousand uh, dollars for an individual, or about okay. uh, about. Um, and you're challenging my math. I went into law because I couldn't do math. <laughs> well, I'll help you 29, along here.
0: 29,000
3: well, for a family of uh, four. Let's take um,
0: that single person again. The person's making about 20,000 and mm-hmm. you said, uh, you know, the numbers come out to be about 14 or 15,000 would be uh, you know, the 130%. So, what does that mean to them? The the hundred and thirty percent comes out to be about fifteen thousand. They're making twenty thousand. Do they then buy their own and have to pay for it or are they going to get a little help?
3: If you are uh, earning twenty let's say you're earning twenty thousand and you're an individual mm-hmm. uh and, and let's say the law went into effect right now, which yes. it doesn't, it right. doesn't go into effect for twenty fourteen.
1: Right. Okay,
3: you would be uh below two hundred percent of the poverty level and so you would be required to pay under the law uh... about um, somewhere between three and four percent of your income on health insurance uh... and the rest of your health insurance premium would be covered by the government uh, so that's the way it works if your income is higher it gradually goes up so if you're earning four hundred percent of the poverty level you will be expected to pay up to nine point five percent of your income on health insurance, and the government will cover it above that. The tax credit will cover it above that. Uh, but if you're earning, uh, as you said, twenty thousand, probably you're going to be required to spend um, three to four percent of your income, which would be what
0: six um, seven hundred bucks. Six, six seven
3: hundred bucks on health insurance over the year. Yes.
0: and the government would cover the rest of it. Yeah, roughly fifty dollars a month. Yeah, the okay.
3: government will also reduce your. I mean, I keep saying the government. It's a, it's a tax credit. Um, it's uh, so there it will also reduce your cost sharing, so that if you are at uh, at that level, um, you will be. Let's see. Uh I, uh I think you'll be expected to pay something like about uh up to about 87% i think it is at that level of your uh, of your uh of of the of the value of your policy you're going to have some deductibles and and co-insurance Uh, but the health insurance policy is going to have to cover most of your costs. You're not going to end up with a $5,000 deductible policy or something like you might now.
0: So people, obviously, uh, hardly anybody, including members of Congress, are going to read the whole 2,200 pages. But if you were talking to, let's say, uh, your kids, Mm -hmm. and they said, uh, Dad, what's the most important thing that we ought to know about this law? What would you say to them?
3: Well, for my kids, the most important thing they need to know about this law is that they're going to be covered on my policy until they turn 26.
0: Okay, that's <laughs> that was good, to good know. news to them. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh.
3: But I mean, in general, I think the most important thing people need to know is that uh, there isn't going to be any excuse for people to be uninsured in this country anymore um, uh, for most people, because but uh, at least people who are Uh, at the average income or below are going to get tax credits, and it's going to help them afford health insurance. I mean, personally, I wish they were more generous, uh, but I think that they're going to be generous enough so that most people will be able to afford health insurance.
0: So what we can say is that for the first time in American history, everyone will be able to Obtain some form of health insurance. Yeah, is that correct? And
3: I think that's correct. And I think that's a huge step forward. Now, the uh, the the projection of the Congressional Budget Office is that by the time this bill is fully implemented, about ninety five percent of of American citizens will be co- American citizens and, and legal residents will be covered. Now, if you are, of course, uh, an undocumented worker who's here, you're out of luck. There's nothing in this bill for you. Uh, and of course, there's a lot of people in the United States who fit that description. But if you are legally here, if you're a citizen, um, there's going to be help in here for you up, up to, um, up to, as I said, uh, 400% of poverty. And the, the thought is that this will cover about 95% of citizens because there's going to be some people, there are always people who fall through the cracks. Uh, but one study I saw recently said that of those who remain uninsured, which is going to be, I think, uh, about about 20 million, um, about over a third of those are going to be eligible for Medicaid. There are going to be people who are eligible for Medicaid, but just for whatever reason haven't uh, applied Um
0: so and, let's see now, you're talking about 20 million, which is about 7 or 8% of the entire population will still be uninsured, but you're saying a third of that number will be eligible. So then we're getting the number down to maybe uh, 14 million out of uh, maybe f- uh, out of 300 million, or maybe 5% of the public will still be uninsured for reasons... Yeah. Do, we, do we understand the reasons for those? Well,
3: again, probably somewhere close to half of those are, are undocumented workers, oh, okay. uh, and, and um, we don't do anything for them, <laughs> unfortunately, from my perspective. Um, uh, but uh, of the other half, I mean, some of them are going to be people who are earning $100,000 a year and who decide they'd rather pay the penalty than be insured. Um, And, you know, you always have people who fall through the cracks. Even in European countries with universal health insurance, you still have a small percentage of people who just fall through the
0: cracks. Yeah. Uh, On that note of falling through the cracks, we're going to take a small crack. We're going to take a small break right now. When we come back, I'm going to ask you about the uh, mental health aspects of the new bill. You're listening to KZYX 90.7 FM Philo, KZYZ 91.5 FM Willits and Ukiah, and 88.1 FM Fort Bragg, streaming on the web at KZYX.org. Stay tuned. We're going to be right back with Professor Timothy Yost. We're going to talk about the mental health aspects of the new health care reform bill. Doctor my eyes have seen the years and the slow parade of fears without crying now i want to understand i have done all that i could to see the evil and the good without hiding you must help me if you can doctor my Welcome back to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. We're here today with t- Professor Timothy Yost and Dr. Jeff Kane. Mental health achieved parity in the year 2008. That's my specialty. And we were delighted that for the first time, I believe, in, uh, in history, you can uh, tell us, please, uh, Tim, uh, that mental health has been considered by the, by the government officially, on an equal playing field with physical health. Mm-hmm. And now the, uh, the new health law uh, pushes us over the edge into actually uh, a wonderful place of offering more mental health care for people than ever before. Is that correct?
3: Well, yes. Um, the bill actually, I mean, 2008 was the sort of heavy lift on mental health care, and the bill actually does not do much to uh, explain I mean, there isn't like a whole title of the bill dedicated to mental health care. Uh, The bill does say that the federal government is supposed to define the essential benefits that must be covered by all qualified health plans, plans that are eligible for, well, uh, basically any plan other than the employment-based plans, and that those must cover um, mental health care and um, substance use disorder care um, and that the mental health parity law applies, and also uh, for the new population that's going to be covered by Medicaid, people who aren't covered now and but will be covered, um, the, uh, the law explicitly says that the benefit package that they're supposed to receive uh, is, is subject to the mental health parity law. Um, but other than that, there is not a lot in the bill that I can remember about Uh, mental health care specifically. Again, you know, that's something that we have addressed, and this bill doesn't have a whole lot more in it about it.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a caller coming in. I think I'll take the call. Uh, Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air.
3: Hi, can you um, say anything about dental care?
0: Okay, let's find out. Thanks. That's a great question.
3: Yeah, dental care is not included in this bill as an essential health benefit except for children. Pediatric dental care is covered, uh, but for adults it is not covered. Um, and uh, I uh, I mean, I think that's a problem, uh, obviously, because dental health care is a very serious need for lots of people. And I think in particular is a, a real problem for People who have serious dental problems and are trying to find employment—it's—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's, it's a problem for um, you know a lot of jobs where you're in contact with the public all the time if you have very serious dental problems. Um, but uh, it is not covered by this bill, unfortunately, except it is for children.
0: How uh, interesting. I mean, mental health used to be the stepchild of all health, and mental yeah. health got nothing, and it wasn't even considered an illness for so long. Now mental health is on a parity, and somehow dental health got dropped to the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. How, how, do, we, do we understand that, or what, uh, what, what's the thinking? I mean, it's, it's, well, it's part of the I'd body. Think... It's, it's pain. It's suffering. It's, yeah. It causes infection. Uh, it's, it's very serious. We all know that. Anybody who's had a toothache knows that
3: yeah well, neither you nor I nor our caller wrote this bill mm-hmm. uh, and uh the you know that it it was a very as we all saw it was an extremely difficult political process. It was a process of always trying to get the last marginal votes from some often some pretty conservative people and uh and many health policies now do not cover dental. I would guess probably a majority don't still. And so uh, that was just, I think, too heavy a lift politically to expand uh, coverage. I know I was at a uh, at a, a town hall meeting kind of thing uh, with some pretty conservative people, and one of whom was a small businessman who got up and complained vigorously because he thought dental care was covered, and he was saying, I just can't afford to provide dental care to my employees on top of everything else. Mm-hmm. So I think there was just uh, too much pushback on what was seen as an expansion of current coverage rather than trying to preserve current coverage.
0: I see. And I think
3: you're right. We finally got into the place with mental health care that it is considered to be a, a basic coverage. But with, with dental and with, with vision care as well, we're still not there.
0: A question about uh, the Congress and the President. Mm-hmm. People ask me this all the time. Do they have a special some kind of a special health care plan or are they included in this new plan or where do they uh, where, what's the situation with that?
3: Okay, yeah. I mean, one interesting thing about the bill is that um uh I when, when I was uh, the, the last step of what's in the bill and I and I didn't quite get this far is that it provides these things called exchanges, which are places where um it, you can go it 's going to be like a farmer 's market or a stock market or a place where you can go probably online and compare all different kinds of insurance policies and and find the one that 's best for you that 's the idea uh, but the uh, the subsidies are only going to be available through the exchanges and uh policies that are sold i mean basically the the, the the policy that is established by this bill, the health plan established by this bill is the bill that's that's sold through the exchange. Well, under the Senate bill, which was adopted, people have the choice of either going into the exchange or buying uh health insurance in the in just out in the open market. And you only get subsidies if you go through the exchange, but, but anybody in anybody in the country can decide whether they want to get insurance through the exchange or or through the open market, except for Congress. Congress members of Congress and their personal staff are the only Americans who are required under this law to buy health insurance through the exchange. So uh, they're going to be in there with all the rest of us. If it ends up being uh, a good policy that's sold to the rest of us, they're going to get it. If it ends up being a bad policy that's sold to the rest of us, then presumably they'll be looking out for themselves and for us. So. Uh, it's not only that they that they're that they're not required to they are required to they're the only americans who are required to get the policies that are available under this bill
0: so that means that they will be getting health insurance plans that are available to the rest of us it's not a very getting, special plan just for them
3: they will be getting exactly the same plans that the rest of us get with the, with the public subsidies.
0: And the same for the president of the United no, States? No, the president,
3: uh, the law only applies to Congress and to Congre- and to their personal staff. It apparently does not apply to, to con- congressional committee staff, and that was the, the concern. I don't know that it's a big concern, but it does apply to your your congressman and anybody who works for your congressman.
0: So when we hear that the congressmen have a staff of two or 3,000, it applies to all of those folks? Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a sizable number when you multiply the number of congressmen and multiply that by 300 uh, or 3,000 per per, per person. So all of them must buy into the general plan. Yeah. I
3: mean, I think that I don't don't remember the exact history of that, but there were some amendments that were offered by the Republicans just to cause trouble, and the Democrats said, sure, we'll take that. And I think that might have been one of them.
0: (laughs) Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, what yeah, about... we don't we don't
3: have a problem with that we'll we'll take that we think this is going to be good insurance
0: well, what about the President of the United States? What kind of plan does he he and his family the
3: president have? will be covered through the federal employees health benefit plan as the president is now
0: Federal employees <laughs> health benefit plan yeah, and, which is ah. the,
3: program that covers all federal employees. Is that, now, a, do they, is that
0: a very special program, like a, something beyond which the rest of us can get? Is that like uh, a Mercedes and we're all driving Chevys? Or a No,
3: I mean, it's, it's just basic health insurance. I would imagine many of your listeners are insured through the Federal Employees Health Benefit Plans. They're postmen or or you know, work for the Coast Guard or something like that. Well, I don't know about the Coast Guard definitely military, but I mean, all federal employees uh, can be members of the federal employees health benefits plan. so that's now, having said that, I mean, to be fair, uh, if the President has uh, uh, a heart attack, the President isn't going to end up you know sitting in the waiting room of some <laughs> county hospital. Uh, mm-hmm. but the as terms of their health insurance coverage, uh they i mean they do have access to i guess the President has access to Walter Reed or other
0: you know, yes of course.
3: hospitals but uh the, but in terms of their actual health insurance coverage, they're discovered through the federal employees health benefits plan, like you know the several million other federal employees.
0: Uh, here's a question. I'm not sure it's directly related to the healthcare bill, but perhaps you could give us some uh, some light on the topic. And that is, people ask me wh- why can't uh, why can't we go to other countries and buy um, and buy uh, medicine, and, and why can't we go to other countries and buy health insurance?
3: Well, in terms of of going to other countries to buy medicines. Um, that's an idea that's been kicking around there for a long time. Obviously, uh, drugs are cheaper in Canada or in, um, most other countries than they are in the United States. Um, and the, <clears throat> I mean, that's a, an idea that, uh, was pushed for this legislation, uh, but was blocked by the drug companies and their allies. And <clears throat> the, the argument that's always given is that, um, that, well, we can't assure the quality of drugs that are, that are purchased from other countries. And there's a little something to that. But, in fact, most of the drugs we use are probably made in other countries anyway. Uh, I mean, like anything else, nothing's made in the United States anymore. Uh, and at least the, the raw materials are imported often from other countries. So I don't think that's a, an insurmountable problem. But the real problem is that, uh, you know, I, the Canadian drug market is just a tiny fraction of our market. Uh, and drug companies from the United States will sell the same pill here for X dollars and sell the same pill in Canada where prices are regulated for uh, significantly less. Well, if if we started buying all the drugs up that are available in Canada, uh, it would obviously mean fewer profits for the drug companies, and they would probably fight back by restricting the amount of drugs they'd send to Canada and the Canadians would end up with uh, fewer drugs available. But uh, it, it, it always seems to me that, uh, you know, we outsource enough things. Outsourcing price controls, it seems to me, is probably not ultimately a good idea. If we want to control prices, we ought to do it ourselves rather than to expect the Canadians to do it for us.
0: I read that this uh, Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, Pharma, yeah. if I'm pronouncing it correctly, mm-hmm. is the most powerful pharmaceutical lobbying organization. Is there anything in reality that can be done to control the impact? that they have with their vast amount of money that they, that they use uh, to influence Congress. I mean, I'm reading here that Max is chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, uh, is receiving huge amounts of money from Pharma, from Edna, from Blue Cross, from Merck, from yep. Pfizer. I mean, you're aware of this, from Amgen, from yeah. Johnson. The list goes on and on and yeah. on. And, and uh, actually, the New York Review of Books has this circle with all the different uh, pharmaceutical yeah. companies yeah. that are giving money to this one man furthermore he 's being lobbied by former uh staff members of of his of his own committees, in other words, who then went to work for these pharmaceutical companies. Is there any hope for for uh, some kind of control there no that says it
3: <laughs> i mean
0: I l- you know, I love your, I love your honesty the, the, I love your honesty Court, the Supreme
3: Court just decided that uh, corporate contributions are just fine they cor- corporations are are just common folks like the rest of us and if they you know what if they want to if whatever they want to spend money to say on the air they can just go ahead and do it so you know i think um short of of i mean there may be some things that can be done but but uh it's it's a huge problem i mean it's the biggest problem in our political system that that um the the big corporations speak much louder than the rest of us and congress listens having said that i mean Pharma did agree to some pretty significant uh, cuts in this bill in the Medicare and Medicaid program. And frankly, I mean, Pharma is, I hate to say this on the air, but is probably responsible for getting this bill passed because they spent millions of dollars to lobby in favor of this bill uh, based on their agreement with the White House and with some Congress people that they weren't going to get whacked any more than they got whacked. Um, and uh... without the advertising money that pharma spent on getting this bill passed, it probably wouldn't have been passed. So um, it, it, it's all bad, but it's not
0: quite so bad. Maybe it's all uh, bad, but not quite so bad. But in terms of the health care bill, I can hear it embedded in what you're saying is that we have we we made we made progress.
3: We have made some huge progress. We've
0: made huge progress.
3: I mean, this is not the bill I would have written, and probably not the bill that you or many of your listeners would have written. But, boy, I mean, you know, 30 more million Americans with health insurance, I'll take that.
0: Okay. On that note, Professor Timothy Yost, Dr. Jeff Kane, thank you very much, both of you, for being on our program today. Thank you. You're welcome. I look forward to having you back again in the future. The takeaway for me today is, yes, this health care bill is progress, and yes, Health is worth fighting for, and each and every one of us better be prepared to join in that battle, to fight for our own health, because it ain't necessarily just coming right at you, even though we've made some progress. Thank you for listening to today's program of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is contributed to by our staff at KZYX and Z, my producer, Ron Rogers, my friend and program engineer, Michael Delora. Please. Join me in exactly one week, not two weeks. We're going to be back next week at exactly this time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.
3: I watch them grow. They're much more than I'll ever know.